Welcome, everybody, to this week's Leadership Lane podcast. And I am so pleased to be joined today by Kaylin Huntress, who I'm going to introduce to you and then I'll throw over to Kaylin. Um, I've known Kaylin now for a couple of years. Absolutely great guy. But apart from that, and, and of course, we only have great people on our podcast, of course. But um, here are some fun facts about Kaylin. So, Kaylin is an American now living in New Zealand. Background get this, started his career as an acrobat. I want to learn a little bit more about that, Kaylin, because I Found that out scouring your website this morning. Um, actor, speaker, digital marketer. And now you bring all of those fantastic skills together and what a wide array of skills uh, into your world, training professional speakers, leaders, and educators on how to better lead Zoom meetings or virtu- through virtual platforms, of course, and creating that engagement. I've seen you do that too, and you're very impressive. Uh, and then also bringing together this, this beautiful um I guess, blend of productivity, communications, and helping people stay engaged. Um, So you help entrepreneurs create really clever marketing systems, and I've seen you do that, along with delivering world-class keynotes, productivity, and communication tips, tricks, and everything else. So welcome to Leadership Lane, Kaylin Hunter. It's great to have you. Thanks, Rita. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Me too, me too. And I know um, I was just before we, we hit record, I was congratulating you on your new book, which I do want to spend some time talking about today because I think it it leads in beautifully to what, um, what we had chatted about uh, in terms of sharing with the audience today, which is this beautiful blend of leading or leadership, obviously, and leading yourself, leading others, but also marketing yourself. And um, quote, unquote, that's the name of your new book, of course. So marketing yourself available now on Amazon, and I'll put the links in for Kaylin's book, but it's all about how to elevate your personal platform to the next level. So I know that today is going to be a very interesting discussion, Kaylin. Yeah, me too. It's going to be fun. Yeah, looking forward to it. Well, maybe I've, um, I kind of have just given everyone your background, but maybe tell us your own words. How did you go from being an acrobat? I'm very curious through to using that, I guess, now to um, to do the work that you do, you, you know, particularly thought leader around productivity and communications. How did that all come about? Well, throughout my entire career, Rita, my work has really been all about giving and gaining attention. Directing attention is the work of the performer and the work of the marketer. How do we earn attention from an audience that's right in front of us? And how do we maintain attention for a demographic? That's not right in front of us right now, but could be in front of us at any time. And so I see them as very similar, but I see things through a performer's lens because I ran away and joined the circus when I was a kid and I lived as a street performer for a long time. And when I was playing guitar on a on a street corner uh, somewhere in North America, I, I hitchhiked around for about a year just with a guitar on my back. And the only way that I survived was by earning attention from people who were willing to give me enough money for tacos and cigarettes for the day. And if I couldn't earn attention, then I didn't get to eat. And so it became like this really real big imperative in my life that I needed to learn how to not just demand attention, but how to earn it. And if I was standing on a, you know, a freeway off ramp and, you know, playing guitar while people were speeding by trying to accelerate on the highway, I wasn't going to earn their attention because they wanted something else. But if I was in a sleepy little tourist town where people were wandering around and looking for something interesting and I could provide that unique experience to them, then I could get them to stop and pay attention. 
And that's what marketing is to me. It's it's not going out into the, the big public and getting as loud as you can because there might be people zipping by that don't have time to stop. But if you can find people when they're in the pause, when they're at the moment when they need you or they need someone like you or they need your message or they need your guidance or they need your leadership, if you can find people at that specific juncture and then provide them with a message that helps them grow, then it's easy to earn attention. Mm, I love that, Kevin, because what that, as you were talking about that, uh, what really took front, uh, I guess, front and center in my mind, or what became front and center was the person. So it's, it's more about, I guess, anticipating their needs, but also being able to provide something for them. So in that busyness, and we all have those pauses, but I guess you are worthy of their pause because you're able to give them something that they really need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's two ways to get that pause. You can manufacture it by convincing them they need to stop, or you can find out when their momentum slows. You know, a lot of times when we're in the middle of a work day and it's 2.30 in the afternoon, that it becomes kind of a drag. And that loss of momentum is a great time for a dance break mm -hmm. because it elevates the energy in the room. But if you try and bring somebody a dance break at 8.55 in the morning, they're not at that natural pause. And so a lot of it is just working with the natural momentum of the people that you're working with. And I like how you said it, Rita, that it's, it's focusing on the other person. Because with marketing and with leadership, if it's self-serving, it doesn't get you very far. But when you're focused on the other person and what their needs are and you show up in, in service, then it's really easy to help them get where they want to go. Mm. It touches on, um, I guess, the ego and that self-serving aspect is, uh, it's more fulfilling, I guess, for that person. So it's really feeding that ego. In your experience, because I know, Kaylin, you've worked with hundreds of leaders, if not thousands, around, and, and, you know, working with them on different um, aspects, whether it's to help them increase their productivity, increase their communication, or even, you know, increasing their ability to market themselves. When you have come across someone where their ego is potentially bigger than them, um, what, what, you know, what advice have you got for someone who, and, and I'm not sure that someone with a big ego might not always go, yeah, my ego is really big. Can you help me kind of tone it down? But we do have those moments. And I know with even coaching clients that I work with where they, they do have this sense of, well, am I leading with ego? So it's almost like a self-awareness. Am I leading with ego? And am I allowing that to take over? What advice have you got for those people that are tuned into that aspect, I guess, of self-awareness? Oh, it's a great question, Rita, because a lot of people in um, in leadership get into leadership because they have a healthy ego. And the, the demographic that I've worked with historically in my digital marketing agency has been authors, coaches, and speakers. I work really well with experts and entrepreneurs, people who have something to say and something to sell. And those are people who have egos. And sometimes I get what I what I lovingly call my vanity clients. They don't really care if their website delivers results because they want it to look pretty. They don't really care if their social media campaign brings in more clients because they want to be popular. And that's, you know, it's a legitimate need in the person. And when they're the client, they're paying the bills, you know, I help them do what they want to do. But what I've seen, Rita, when somebody wants to make impact and the advice that I give them is to stop using the first person. I, me, and start using the second person, you. And then when when I really see people start to gain momentum is when they use the, the third person. No, I'm sorry. This would be, my grammar's off. It would be the first person, plural. It would be we, 
you know, because a, a community is bound together by their common unity. And if you're leading a community, then finding that unity that brings you all together and talking about that, it takes you out of your ego so that you're not saying this is what I want for the team because I think it's best. Instead, the conversation is focused on what do we need as a team? And what do we think is best? And rolling people to help you in a shared mission is a lot easier than steamrolling them with your ego's drive to be right. Mm. And it's much easier for people, of course, as you say, that unity, it's much easier for them to connect into that. They can see themselves and see the value that they bring to that, that thing that's external to to the you and the me, I guess. Um, And it does become we. It's that shared purpose and, and and that common understanding of we are here and we're all driving towards this one thing together. So it yeah. almost, um, in some ways, I think it it matters less who the leader of that kind of group is. Um, it, well, it, it matters, but it's not first and foremost. Maybe I'll rephrase it that way. It right. matters in terms of how the group is led, but that outcome that you're all driving towards that purpose is really what becomes front and centre. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good distinction, Rita, that it's not the the leader who's the most important, it's the outcome. Yeah. That's the most important. And Kaylin, with teams that you've worked with and with leaders that you've worked with, what what have you experienced works best when you're trying to coordinate a group of people towards a shared set of goals and a shared purpose? In your experience, what, what works best to help leaders do that? Well, there's there's two things that I'm thinking of. And the first is tactical and the second is strategic. And the the tactical advice I would give is to ask for contribution. And this is something I do in my virtual meetings and my virtual presentations. You know, like we're, if you're given a keynote and you're just talking at people, it's really easy for them to tune out and go check their Facebook notifications. But if you're asking them to contribute and their ideas are incorporated into the meeting, it's so compelling. Because then they're not just watching you talk, they're watching you make something out of what you've provided them. And so that contribution, that incorporation of of the audience into what you're doing, I think is so effective on a tactical level. On a strategic level, what I often advise my coaching clients to do is to to reframe the, the why, the reason why they want to do something from why I want to do it to why they want to do it. You know, I I want my employees to be in the office at 8.30. Well, how could we reframe that? Why would they want to be in the office at 8.30? It gives you a much different scope of answering the question. Yeah, it's that what's in it for them, isn't it? You know, it's that common acronym. I I play with that a lot with teams. If we can't create that compelling what's in it for them or the the what's in it for me, uh, they're not going to see. They're not going to see it. And, And whilst you might think that that is a compelling enough purpose as a leader of that group, if it doesn't resonate for them, you're not likely to get any traction, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, not I imagine, because I've seen it time and time again. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, like it, it can be disastrous. And that is, you know, and I guess it goes back to that ego um, and without sense checking, like without really thinking about, oh, I think this is a great idea because I'm the leader. But if I'm not going to sense check that, if I'm not going to almost even fact check it with my team and, and get their views, uh, I, I could just be selling it to myself, which isn't really right. my use as a leader. Yeah. And a lot of times when a leader has a, a reason for wanting something, I want people to be in the office at 8.30 so that more work gets done and where people don't you know leave early for lunch. 
or or whatever, that that reasoning might not be present in the in the team. And so by asking the team, what would the advantages be to coming into 830? How would your work change? It'll it'll get them to articulate the differences it would make in their own lives and their own work. And that's a much bigger incentive to having people follow your instructions rather than just because you told them to do it. Yeah. It's this classic, um, usually it's set up as a dichotomy of the what and the how. Yeah. So we tell people what we want them to do. We tell them how we're going to do it. So we're going to change our working practice at day 30s is how we're going to do it. Or, or you will work out the how based on your personal circumstances. But I guess what I'm hearing in what you're saying is it's it's going that step further to the why. And it's mm-hmm. it's all, you know, it's framing it up as a question so people can make sense of it in their own way and, and find that why for them. Yeah. Yeah, I love what uh, Simon Sinek said in the the most popular TED Talk of all time um, to start with why. And he has this golden circle where there's what on the outside and how on the inside and why on the center. And that most people go out, go at it backwards and they start with what and then go to how and then come into why. But when you start with why, the the what and the how, they just naturally happen. And they might even happen differently than you intended they might be more efficient or more elegant. And you don't discover it if you start from the outside. But if you start from the inside, and the inside isn't in us, the leaders don't have the inside. The inside is in the team. That's where the why really is. It's in the team. So potentially, Kayla, you know, what I'm hearing there is leaders, we're, we're probably making it a little harder for ourselves when we start from the inside and work, work our way towards, sorry, starting from the outside, working our way towards the inside. It sounds like we're setting ourselves up for a much harder job than if we start with that why and move our way out. It's harder, but it's solitary. Mm. And there's a comfort in doing work in solitary. You know, I've got my Moleskine journal and I'm writing out how the new team is going to work and why it's going to be so great. And it all makes sense to me. But that's centered in me. If I'm going to center in the team, then I need to make an experience for the team, maybe during our one of our meetings or one, maybe during a team retreat where I can create a circumference that's made up of everybody in the team. And then we create a center, a shared center among all of us. And that's why team retreats are so transformative is because it gives everyone a, an opportunity to contribute to this shared entity that the team is. Yeah, creating that space, isn't it? And and very much it's a it's a a space bound by time. You know, you know, you know the dates you're going to be away on this retreat. You know that that is sacred time that the team's going to have to explore whatever it is that they might explore. Mm, I like mm-hmm. it. One thing, um, Kaylin, I know amongst a lot of things that you do is you do help leaders to um, lead teams more effectively in a hybrid way uh, because of so much of the work that you do is obviously on on virtual uh, platforms. And I know that. All over the world, leaders um, across so many organisations are dealing with hybrid teams and the fact, you know, most what I hear most often is we've got about, you know, a ratio of about three days in the office to two days at home or vice versa. Um, in terms of what we were talking about, I guess, with connecting teams to a why, uh, what are you finding is working most effectively for leaders that are dealing with hybrid teams when you've got lots of variations and permutations of people in um, at all different times and on all different days. What are you finding is is working most successfully? Great question. You know, the hardest thing to manage is the volatility. Because even if we're meeting three days in the office and two days remote right now, in six weeks, that could change. And because we're always having to reconfigure, you know, the, the challenge is how do we create something that's stable amidst all this volatility? And I think one of the, the best things that you can do is use the office as a tool. 
you know, the office isn't just a place for you to happen to bump into each other. What are the things that you can do in an office that you can't do when you're working remote? Some of the successful teams that I've been working with have have had a, a dedicated office day for their team, not necessarily for the whole company, but one team leader will say, hey, you've got two days a week in the office, make one of them Thursday, because Thursday's for our team. And on Thursday, we're going to do this in the morning, we're going to do this lunch experience, and you're welcome to come if you want to, and then we're going to do this thing at the end. And then it gives like a framework for everybody who's coming in, it gives them a reason to look forward to showing up. So it's not like, oh, this is a drag. I can't do my laundry during lunchtime. Instead, it's like, oh, great. I get to go and share this experience with my team. And that's much different than feeling that you're obligated to show up, but instead that you're being invited to an experience. It is. I think um, with the rise of the focus on the employee experience, um, it's so important because that's what we're creating at the end of the day. And there's so much movement in industry across all industries. You know, we've got people the lowest unemployment rate that we've seen in a long time for Australia anyway, we've got very volatile market conditions where people, it does prompt a little bit of a move, I think, when people are feeling change in the waters. Uh, so mm-hmm. to focus in on this experience, what I'm hearing there is you create stability. And as you said, you use the office as your tool, but you're also creating it almost as an anchor. Um, and then centering an experience around that. So it's a, it's more than a place to just come and do your work, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a pulse. Yeah. you know, that you can return to, you know, th- thinking of this as a musician, there, there's, you can go way out during the bridge of a song and you can have this really crazy guitar solo, but you have to keep the beat. Mm-hmm. Even if you're being improvisational and you're getting really crafty, having a single stable beat underneath all that, it allows you to do those, all of those random things. And when you're working from home and you're picking up kids and you're uh, working odd hours, like that's kind of like the solo that you're playing. But then there's this beat of when I go back in the office, we have our Monday morning catch up or we have our, our stand up on Wednesdays or whatever that pulse is that gives people uh, a place to return to. But I find that these are not, they shouldn't be boring. The pulse should actually be the fun part of the day. Uh, I've been working a lot with this idea of playful productivity, which is that we get more done when we enjoy our work. Because joy is what allows us to bring more of ourselves to our work. We bring more creativity. We bring more focus and attention. Um, And and I I get some resistance when I talk to leaders about this idea of playful productivity because games are seen as an escape from work. But there's this, uh, this interesting guy named Dr. Jason Fox, and he wrote a book about quests, and he's into gamification. And he says that people don't play games to escape from work. People play games to engage in well-designed work. You know, a game, it'll give us instant feedback. It'll let us know when we've done something right or we've done something wrong. It lets us try again right away. There's a clear scoreboard on how you're doing. And in our work, we don't really get that. We don't get clear feedback on if we're doing it right or wrong. We're often working in these silos by ourselves. And then when we share with others, they may misinterpret it. And so we don't even know if we're doing the right thing. And so I find that a game gives a structured opportunity for a, a team to interact and develop the relationships that become so imperative when things do become volatile. When things change so rapidly and you need somebody on the team to come in and help, if you've spent the time developing relationships through play, then you have a strengthened team that's going to be able to handle any difficulties that come your way. 
Mm. I love that notion of playful productivity. And I can see that um, for people that take themselves very seriously, of course, it would be a hard concept to kind of go play. What's that? Something my seven-year-old does or something that I do on the weekend. You know, we, we associate play with fun. And it's interesting that given the proportion of time that we spend working, uh, whatever work looks like for people, it's interesting that we've kind of stripped for a lot, a lot of people, they've stripped out completely that play, that fun, that joy, that love, all of those things that we feel mm-hmm. when we're very, very light and very playful. Malin, what what tips do you give? I mean, leaders that are listening, thinking play, like how could I incorporate that into that beat that you talked about? I love that analogy into the beat and the pulse of my team. What are some ways that you find most useful where leaders can incorporate some play? Well, there's a lot of games that you can play on Zoom with remote teams that are, you know, really simple. You can take two minutes to play a game. Um, one of my favorites is uh, is guess the the movie with emojis. And there's this video on YouTube. It's like an hour long, and it just shows a couple of emojis, and you have to guess what movie it is. And so sometimes when I'm when I'm on a call and I see the energy start to deflate, I just say, Hey, does anybody want to play a quick game? And I share this video and we guess five or six of these movies. And then two minutes later, we get back to work and we're energized and refreshed. So that's just a small example. There's a lot of in-person games that rely on, on improv. Improvisation is like a, a core theatrical tool and, and it's, it's run on games. And improvisation helps an ensemble, a group of performers, develop a feeling with each other so that they know when another person's going to move. When this person pauses, what does that mean? And how do, you, how do you decide when to enter after the pause? These are really subtle things that you can, uh, you can understand and tune if you're playing games with each other, you know, play like a, like a musical instrument. When a band is playing together, it's the exploration and improvisation that gives you those subtle cues about your team. And so finding ways to do that, whether it's in-person or hybrid or virtual, there's all sorts of short, easy games that you can play that help people develop those relationships. So I'm hearing, you know, that, that you'd use them almost as energizers. So when as a leader, you're tuned into the energy and 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 some aren't, you know, there are some leaders that to, um, that just aren't for whatever reason. But I guess, you know, there is that, um, what you're bringing up there is that importance for the leader to really be tuned into the energy of the team, to notice um, the peaks and troughs and to have some strategies in place mm. um, to where you can either sustain the energy of the team or sometimes bring it down or I guess sometimes bring it up too. It's really that that role of energy conductor almost for the team. Right, right. Because the leader isn't the thermostat. Yeah. Or no, excuse me, the, the leader is not the thermometer because yes. the thermometer just measures the temperature of the room, but the thermostat is what sets the temperature of the room. Yeah. And that's what a leader does. Mm-hmm. And so I find that as a general rule of thumb, every 10 minutes, you can change what you're doing. If I'm just talking at you with slides after 10 minutes, I'm going to change into doing an exercise. If we've been doing this for 10 minutes, I'm going to change and put you in breakout rooms mm-hmm. and those sorts of uh, the, the variety and the novelty is really good for keeping people's attention. But if somebody's having a hard time sensing the energy of the room, um, then I recommend the the collection of ideas from the team. It's an easy way to find out, you know, so how are you feeling right now? Go ahead and type it in the chat. We're going to take 30 seconds. Nobody hit enter yet. 
We're going to type in the chat the answer to this question. And then at the end of 30 seconds, we'll all hit enter together. This is called a chat waterfall. And when you do this exercise, then you have people wait until the end. You could play like the Jeopardy theme song or something until the end of the 30 seconds or put up a timer or whatever. And then when it's done, there's this cascade of answers that everybody can read through. And it's not just something that they're being told to consume. It's something they contributed to. And so it becomes this community art project that the entire team made this together. And so for a pulse, I think that a chat waterfall is an easy, simple way to start every meeting or to, or to end every meeting. Hey, everybody, question for you. What's the biggest challenge we're facing with this system? Yeah. What's one thing that you would change about this office building or whatever? If there's something, if there's some intelligence you want to gather from the team, turn it into a game yeah. and then you'll earn their attention. Yeah. And it is very engaging. And it's it's kind of quick too. And it's uh, it doesn't really take up too much time and attention for people. But as you say, they've contributed to something. And at the end, they can see um, that blend of contributions and, and mm -hmm. how, you know, and what that means for the team, but also how they have overall contributed to this thing um, that exists for the entire team. Yeah. And it also demands their attention if they were distracted and doing something else on another screen. And, oh, he has the question. I got to be in here for this. Yeah, right. <laughs> I um, And it's so easy to do because now, of course, we've all become very clever at being able to demonstrate uh, attention and focus. But we know when we're not there. You know, we, we know because we know that our responses will be substandard. We'll know that it'll probably invite more questions, which sometimes is great for opening up conversation, but not when you've been kind of caught out because you've been checking your emails or doing your emails instead of really being fully present and participative. Um, oh, what did you say? I'm sorry. I was checking my email right there. <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> how rude, right? No, it's not, just, no, it just matters the experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm, we are recording this via audio, but uh, of course we can see each other. So I know where your eyes are. I know where they are. Um, Kaylin, in terms of that, you know, that, element of play and trying some different things because for some leaders listening to this I'm sure that for some of them it'll be the first time that they're hearing you know some of the um, activities that you can take advantage of on platforms like Zoom but also things like Chat Waterfall and, and really using those techniques to gather the team's attention. What comes up for me though in this is also trust because there's vulnerability on the team leader's part on that leader's part to kind of go I'm going to try something new here um, mm -hmm. and I'm going to really be testing my trust in the team around whether they're going to go for it or not. Um, what's your advice around that? Like for, for a leader that's feeling a little apprehensive to try some of these new ways to um, promote productivity in the team, to promote engagement, what's your advice for someone struggling with that? To position it as a reward. You know, like we're going to try something new today, team. I, I don't know if this is going to work. And if it doesn't, you know, I'll be the buffoon. Uh, something I learned in clown school is that the clowns are always numbered. There's the one which has the most authority. There's the two. If there's more than two, then there's the three. And the three is the is the one who gets to look at the audience. He's the dumbest. He's the one at the low, he, he's the one that everybody else kicks around, but the audience sees themselves through the three. And the one, while the one clown has the most authority and is the one who yells the most and tells people what's to do, he's also the butt of the jokes. And that's why the clown routine works is because the one is the straight man. And the straight man is this term that we use for a performer that's just there to hold the space so that the other clown can really do some good work. 
And that's how I see leadership is that we hold the space so that the team can do their good work. And if it means that we play the part of a buffoon a little bit to get the performance that we want, I find that to be a worthwhile exchange. So really not taking yourself too seriously, I think, in that and also taking a risk and and being prepared to um to really think about the different characters that you may need to play uh, in your leadership role. Yeah. Yeah. There is that the, adaptability. Yeah. Yeah. And, and our characters can modify to fit the situation. One on one, we all have different personas than we do for a group. And and I'd like to circle back to something that you said about um, about, uh, you know, some groups might not be comfortable doing games together, especially if they're new. You know, newer groups have a much um, lower threshold for how much vulnerability they'll share. But groups that have been together for a very long time, if they've been meeting once a week for five years, you can you can access a level of vulnerability that you can't meet when you're convening everyone for the strength for the first time. And so with the age of your team. And the the eight, like the proportion of long-term people to short-term people, people who've just joined the team, you know, those are all variables that's going to, that, that are going to make a change in how, how vulnerable, how silly, how enthusiastic and how entertaining you can be. And so it relies on the leader to really check in with themselves and say, is this appropriate for this group? And a lot of times the only way to find this out is through feedback. You know, one of the great things about being a performer, Rita, is that it taught me that failure is how we learn. And so personally, I'm willing to try something with a group and watch it fail because it's like Albert Camus said, always go too far because that's where you'll find the truth. Yeah, I really, really love that. And I guess that learning through learning through failure or or the other thing I like to think of it is learning through doing. So I know you know, and we all have different thinking styles and I guess we all have different approaches to how we we jump into things. So some of us will take a much more considered reflective approach and try and get it to 100% before we launch in. But some of us, and, and I'm absolutely in this category, I'll have a go and then if it's not quite right, that's okay. Well, I, I see it as part of the process. It's part of that iterative mm-hmm. process of testing, yeah. um, almost like a research project, I guess. But you've got to kind of go in and test it to know whether you pursue it or not. You're, you abandon the ship or you abort the mission, whatever you want to throw there as a metaphor, but then try something new. But you're not going to know unless you've had a go and actually tested it. Right. Only yeah. testing will tell. Yeah, yes, that's exactly right, along with some time too. Hey, um, Kayla, I want to get to your book because your book, um, Marketing Yourself, How to Elevate Your Personal Platform to the Next Level. I work with so many people these days that are really, they're going through a bit of their own personal brand renaissance. You know, they're we've gone through change globally. Uh, many people are feeling that change within their local communities, within themselves, within their families. Um, and so with that, I guess, we do get a lot of people starting to think about my personal brand. How am I putting myself out there? How do I, you know, if I've been in the same organisation or leading the same team for a long time and now I want to try do something different, um, how do I go about doing that? So do you want to just um, maybe run us through a little bit, you know, the book, how you, um, the, the process, of course, of coming up um, with the, that idea and, and really what what are your key messages um, from the book? Sure. Yeah. The, well, the first chapter in the book, Rita, is uh, is about your personal statement. And the personal statement is really the the core statement that expresses who you are, what you do and why you're amazing. And a lot of times we we have a long version of this and we call it a bio. 
And the bio's got paragraphs in it. It talks about all the different things we did, the people we worked with and the places we went to school. It's very, it's, it's a volume that's meant to be the, uh, you know, a catalog of all the topics that you could talk about. But that's long to express to somebody. And so that's why we developed this thing called an elevator pitch, a shortened version of it that you could deliver verbally and about the length of time it takes to have an elevator ride with someone. And an elevator pitch is great because it allows you to share your key messages without having to think them up on the spot, articulating them in advance and saying, I'm going to talk about this and about this and about this. And this is how I phrase these sentences. And practicing the elevator pitch means that when you meet somebody and they want to know who are you and what do you do and why are you amazing? You can just rattle it off without even thinking about it. And that ease in talking about yourself, a lot of times that confidence is really what people want to hear from you, that you are so confident in your topics and your expertise that they know that they can trust you with that. When I hear a great elevator pitch from a finance guy, I don't know anything about finance, but if if that person talks about finance so confidently and clearly, then I know, oh, when I need something about finance, I go and I talk to this person, you know, but but then there's a shorter version. When you distill the elevator pitch, you get something I call a personal statement. And this personal statement is just a sentence and it follows a simple formula. I help these people facing this problem with this solution. And that's it. And and the best elevator, or the best personal statement I ever heard in my life, um, I, I tell the story in the book. It was at, a, at this conference in 2015 called Pioneer Nation. And it was for digital entrepreneurs who make a living from their laptops. And we got together from all across the world. I flew there from Costa Rica and I and met with, you know, my guild, my, you know, people who were living like I was living. And I met a guy and I said, hey, what do you do? And he said, oh, I'm Corey. I help people sell their art online. I knew exactly what he did. He didn't have to try and explain his whole business model to me. His personal statement was distilled enough that I said, hey, I know somebody you should talk to. And that's the reaction we want. We want to share a personal statement with a complete stranger that get, that makes them say, hey, I know somebody you should talk to. That takes advantage of the weak ties in our network where it's not just who you meet, it's who they know when you meet them. That really makes your network powerful. Yeah, it's, and we love to do it as humans. Like we we love to, hey, I know someone that can. You know, we, we love to connect. You know, one of our primary roles, I guess, in our, you know, when thinking about our need as humans to belong to something and belong to a community, so to sustain that, it's around that network and spreading that network and continuing to to promote it. So I love it. So personal statement, one sentence, short, sharp. We will always know Corey, the person who helped others sell art. And that's beautiful because it's so simple. Lovely. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of leadership, what, you know, how would how would a leader um, bring that in to, to their teams, I guess, to help their teams feel more engaged, to promote high performance? Would you suggest that each individual look at a personal statement or would you take it further and, and think about the team adopting some kind of almost team statement? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's such an interesting question. Like, what's the role of this team? Mm. A lot of times when this goes up to the organization level, we see it expressed as a, as a mission or as a vision statement, you know, something that this organization is here for. When you bring it down to the team level, a lot of times it's very mechanical. This team exists, exists to perform these functions and manage these exchanges. And that's one way to look at a team. But when you when you transition it from a mechanical purpose 
to an intentional purpose. You know, we're here to make our employees' lives happier. Then it comes outside of, of what is the business here to do to make profit and more, how do we want to live our lives? What's the role we want to play for each other? What do we mean to each other? And so if you come from the team level down to the individual level, the personal statement becomes your role in the company. And it's aspirational. A lot of times for an individual within a team, the personal statement might not be what they're doing right now, but it might be the role that they're growing into. I want to make people smile when they show up to work. I want to prevent problems from happening. I want to make sure all the numbers even out. Whatever that statement is, it's, a, it's an expression of your highest contribution to the team. Great question. Yeah, and it circles back beautifully. I mean, where we started this conversation was all about um, ego and then defining purpose. Um, and then, of course, we we went to um, good old Simon Sinek, and you know, he um, it's an oldie but a goodie around that's you know, starting with why premise. But it is um, there's something collective in there, but it's also the power of that um, collection and and that energy that comes together, which you know is really what what defines a team, and I think high performing teams. And, and for a leader, you know. We talk a lot about engagement. We talk a lot about connection. And I think leaders, you know, we're in a tough environment. We're doing that now in a way that we've never had to do that before. You know, we haven't, even though COVID's been with us for a very long time now. Uh, hybrid, I think we were all a little sceptical and cynical about whether it would be here to stay or not. It looks like it is. Like it's becoming really quite entrenched into our work practices today. So in terms of that connection and that engagement, what can leaders do in, in your experience, Kaylin, to continue to promote that in, in today's working conditions and working environment? Mm, great question. Uh, one of the things that I, I teach in um, one of my keynotes is called hybrid team culture. And, uh, and I go over some of the best practices that some of the top performing hybrid teams have been using. And a lot of these come from the remote first companies that have been doing this for a long time. Uh, WordPress has famously been remote its entire time and they've never had a, a central office, but they have hundreds of, of employees across multiple continents. And the way that they manage culture is by finding ways to communicate both synchronously and asynchronously. And they label each of these channels, synchronous communication. For, for a lot of people, this is uh, when, when you give a phone call. If I give you a phone call, I want you to pick up right away because this is a synchronous line of communication. It's like the bat phone, you know, like I want you, I want to talk to you right now. But if you're uh, inviting Bruce Wayne out to brunch, that's asynchronous communication. You send the invitation or the email at one point in time, and then it's consumed and replied to and processed at a different point in time. And making clear which of those channels you're using different tools for, you know, Slack is synchronous and email is asynchronous. You reply to my texts within 15 minutes, but you can wait a day on emails, whatever your preferences are, just making those clear within the team. And then once you have those, those channels identified, using them not just for work, but also for play. A lot of the best Slack uh, work environments have a random channel or a water cooler channel or a, a scavenger hunt channel where, yes, you're doing your work throughout the day, but then it's just a click away to do something fun and goofy with your friends on your team. And I think both of those are really important because if you're only using work communication just for work and you're not incorporating any play, it can be drudgery. But if, just by putting in a little spark and, and encouraging your team to come up with games themselves 
to lead and moderate their own games, then you you suddenly create this environment where people enjoy being there. And when we can do our work in good cheer, we get more done. Yeah, it's um, and it brings us back beautifully to that whole um, concept of play and playful productivity, as you talked about. It's like you're letting you're letting people um, you're giving them space to let off steam and just to have some fun, just as you would if you're in the office and you've gone to make a coffee or or gone to visit your friend in in accounts or wherever. Um, you're you're bringing that in into this um, hybrid or virtual environment, which I, I really like. Helen, great tips today. I think we've covered so much for leaders that are that are doing it tough in a different kind of working environment. We're all finding our way. And I think, you know, as I said, we've we've been living in these circumstances for a number of years now. But if you go to organize different organizations and if you move between different organizations, they'll all do them a little bit differently. And of course, as a leader, um, you might find yourself moving into different organizations and having to develop a new rhythm and a new way. Um, incorporating the culture of that place and um, and how they they do what they do. So I've I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much today, Kaylin. Um, where can people find your new book? Well, my new book is at marketingyourselfbook.com and you can download the first free chapter or the first chapter for free by subscribing to my newsletter. Perfect. And I will certainly put those notes into um, the show notes so people can go in and grab themselves that first free chapter. Kaylin Huntress, thank you so much for being part of the Leadership Lane podcast this week. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Rita. I really enjoyed this conversation. See you soon.